So Karen, hey, how are you this morning? <laughs> Good morning, Karen. Just barely morning here uh, in Tacoma Park, Maryland. I'm doing all right. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I know we're just getting to know each other, but um, you know the conversations that I've had with you over the past, what has it been like? Maybe a year, a year and a half, maybe two years, I don't know. But point being, um, <laughs> they have, I mean, they've been fun conversations. They've been serious conversations. We get work done. And then, you know, we also learn a little bit about each other. So I've just really enjoyed them. And you are one of the people who gave me the inspiration to even think about doing a podcast like this. So thank you for that. I bow down before you. Oh, <laughs> Karis, you know, I actually think the world of you and had heard so many great things about you before I heard your voice or saw your face. And when you testified for Ways and Means Committee, I was like, oh, she's Black. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like such a nice surprise and you were one of the first people with subject matter expertise in this field that I look to for a little bit of leadership so know that I admire you <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious I'll never forget when you told me that it was like yeah I saw you and I was like wait a minute she's black and then, of course, I had not met you before either. I'm like, well, wait a minute, she's black. <laughs> so we were having this, these, uh, this moment of, oh my God, we're two black people like doing this work in mental health in leadership roles where we can make a difference, and we didn't know each other. So that is kind of the essence of finding the unapologetically black unicorns, and I think you are an unapologetically black unicorn. So. Um, and woo, yay. So one of the things <laughs> that, um, you know, I've always been interested in, um, especially is how we sometimes get into what it is that we do. And one of the things that I've noticed, especially in the mental health field, people with lived experience and, and other folks is how do they get into the policy work? I find that so interesting. I fell into it. You know, I wasn't kind of I didn't study it. I didn't even understand it. People had to mentor me to understand that policy, where policy drives practice. Kind of knew it intuitively, but I didn't really understand that there were roles that people could play that are specifically around policy. So how did you get into that? So very good question. Did not necessarily envision or dream of myself working in policy and advocacy. In fact, sometimes I pinch myself like, this is kind of too cool to be true. I went to undergrad for engineering and science stuff and through discussions with some kind of socially apt friends, I realized that my, my appetite for involvement in the, in the community organizing space was strong and then after Bush won the second election in 2006, I guess, I was just floored uh, after his poor handling of so many other things. I just thought that this country needed different kind of leadership. And 
I vowed to do what I could to learn as much as I could about our political process, our political systems, how everyday people can get involved, how, what do you do beyond voting? And I kind of just followed that path and um, took my friend's, you know, ambition of working on the Hill as a senator. And I said, well, I can learn about that too. So just by kind of exploring that territory of seeing what political campaigns were like, seeing what the legislative branch side was like working for state legislature and Congress, um, I realized like, oh, this world is very important and not one that I really knew anything about. So I wanna stay here for at least now. And working on the Hill means that you typically have a broad portfolio as a legislative assistant of like maybe at least six to 10 issue areas. And I realized, well, this isn't the place for me because the thing I care about most is mental health care. So I got a little bit of audacity to talk to my bosses about mental health and I got to start taking those meetings and researching those bills and then um, networking with the people that came into the offices to take meetings. And I realized, well, I don't really want to work in the member's office. I want to be on the other side advocating on behalf of the people whose voices are not being heard. So um, through networking and some connections, especially with coalition leadership, I was able to land um, at my current organization. And it's been a dream come true. Wow, that's really amazing. And I love the word that you said, I had the audacity. Well, you go girl. <laughs> you know, It's like that is the essence of being an unapologetically black unicorn is having a bit of audacity. But it sounds like you really forged forth to kind of make your path. So why mental health, though? So I experienced some kind of nervousness, anxiousness, after a traumatic incident, my mom died as a child. I was nine. She was 45. And my dad, you know, I talked to adults about it and they just kind of shook it off, like not really knowing what was going on. I went to the school counselor in high school. And then by the time I got to undergrad, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Mm. And I realized I was so scared to talk about it because I thought I would be blamed. I would be shamed. I would be judged. And then it was also difficult to stay in care mm. because my insurance company gave me this limitation and I had to keep calling and asking for permission to get care. And I was an athlete. I played volleyball, track and field, basketball. So I had breaking, broken ankles. I had sprained limbs. Like it was nothing to go to the, the hospital or doctor and get physical health care. Why was I experiencing all of this difficulty in getting mental health care? And then I had a couple conversations with my interns and with other people in the community. And I was like, this is just ridiculous. And everybody knows it. Mental illness is on both sides of my family. Hmm. I, my father has 12 brothers and sisters. My mother had nine brothers and sisters. They're both from big families down south who, you know, participated in sharecropping and other things to bring in money for the family. And Nobody wants to talk about what we're all dealing with. Mm. Let's do something different. I also thought it was a means to economic empowerment because if 
we're losing productivity and connection and that ends up with some people being on disability, being unable to work, being unable to stay in school, then it becomes economic. So I think for families, which are all families, but for families who are experiencing loss, trauma, and then eventually mental, mental health conditions, even you know, psychosis or struggling with um, mood disorders, like there are ways to help. And we're basically forcing people to not be able to get the help that they need because of the insurance barriers, the shame, the kind of segregation of mental health care. And I just thought this is truly a, a civil rights issue and an economic issue for me that's important enough to let all the other issues fall by the wayside because what's more important than human being? Yeah. There's nothing more important than human being. I care about the environment. I care about transportation issues. I care about education. I care about tax reform. But what's more important than healthcare and human being? Nothing. And I didn't realize I was getting into the most complex policy issue area. Yeah, could it be any more <laughs> complex? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's so interesting because I, you know, very similar to you, you know, when I first um, started having symptoms, I think it was, it was okay for me to talk about being depressed. It's a word we can say. It, it's a word in the dictionary that doesn't really mean that there's something drastically wrong with you. We can have sad days. We can have, you know, and, and my, my mom said, my mom was, you know, one of these people. She says, yeah, you were born sad. And I'm like, oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot, mom. I was born sad. She goes, no, well, you always have these sad eyes. And so it wasn't, it wasn't hard for her to understand when I said I was sad. That wasn't hard. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when it became a point where I was struggling with hearing voices, that was a whole different matter of me not wanting to tell my parents, not wanting to tell my friends you know, I had seen so many different things on TV about, you know, people who hear voices, you know, it was the person who was homeless and dirty in the street, quite frankly. I mean, it was those kind of stereotypical images, the person who was screaming at somebody, the person in law and order who had always killed somebody, you know, that's the storyline that uh, I was like, okay, wait a second, I'm not telling anybody about what's going on for this very same reasons of shame and um, really thinking that my parents wouldn't love me, like the, the people who love me the most and stick by me no matter yep. what, for some odd reason, I thought, oh, they're not going to love me. Um, and I, I could get my friends not liking me. I could get that. They don't have to like me. They're not like blood, right? <laughs> this is my yeah. you know, blood. So um, that yeah. really resonates when you talk about sort of, and, and especially in our community in black and brown communities, sort of the, um, extra burden of the shame. You know, it's almost like an extra burden. And I also like the fact that you put it together with wealth, that, you know, we have the safety net. And and for me, sometimes I look at the safety net, which could be, you know, SSI, SSDI, et cetera, and other benefits that can come with somebody who's on disability, that sometimes, you know, when you have a mental illness, it's like, yes, you're going to go on disability and we're going to keep assessing it. So the safety net almost for me became an entrapment. I had to figure out how to get the heck out because, you know, being on disability was also living in poverty and trying to figure out how do you stay well 
when it's almost you're subjugated to poverty Mm -hmm. because of the way that especially serious mental illnesses are kind of in specialty mental health over there Mm. and everybody else is over Over here. here. Right. Yes. Right. And then, you you know, that is it separate and equal? Yeah. No, (laughs) I don't think so. So I think you're totally right about the complexities. Yeah. And the more I learned about how people with mental health conditions and mental illnesses were ending up homeless or in jail or in and out of jail and hospitals, I thought, well, this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone looks at the research and, and kind of the path that people follow at times, it's like, why would we allow this to happen? Mm. If money is so important in America, why would we be wasting money on putting people in jails and traumatizing them rather than offering some type of solutions for hope? It, it just doesn't make any sense. So why do, you, why do you think that it's acceptable or somehow it feels acceptable? I think it comes down to the same thought process when you see someone homeless and you pass by them on the street it's well it's not me so why should I care Mm. it's somewhat of the kind of lack of understanding and compassion that really drives the top upper echelon to continue to be billionaires and exploit labor it's because well it's okay if a few don't make it because the rest of us will (laughs) and almost like uh, why should I stop and sacrifice all that I'm working towards, all that I'm working for, for someone else? Yeah. And out here too, well, not just out here, but a lot of times homelessness issues are, uh, well, you see, those are all the mentally ill people, quote unquote. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, that could be the person who half a paycheck away ended up kind of not being able to uh, remain in SROs, you know, those um, hotel like vouchers where you get them for every night, you have to do it every day. Um, they may not might not qualify for other um, housing assistance. And or yes, yeah, some people do choose it's, you know, to, to be on the streets. But do you not think that that could traumatize a person that that can cause also depression and stress? I think that's the point. <laughs> and um, not yeah. everybody started out and that many way. Many people are yeah. one paycheck um, away from um, or sorry, one medical bill away from not yeah. being able to meet their housing needs. And the safety net has just vanished, really, in many ways, because of how expensive everything is now. And you know this since the 70s, everything has gone up, the cost of everything has gone up, except for wages. Wages are the only thing that have stayed the same. And while our pr- productivity, I think the Uh, Economic Policy Institute released a study this week that said productivity has gone up over 200% since 1973. However, wages have stayed the same and the food prices go up and inflation goes up and gas goes up and housing goes up. And this all becomes a mental health issue for me because you're going to be in a state of distress thinking about how does all of this work out? How can I operate if I'm making this much, but I have to, I need this much to keep my housing? Yeah. Or if I'm living with family, I have to contribute this much and they might make me crazy. 
too. Yeah, so yeah exactly. you got to deal with all these other folks and personalities and perhaps traumatic, triggering situations. And you're really just trying to make ends meet. That's the beauty of peer respite though, right? Kind of introducing yet another thing into the conversation is you know, sometimes when people need a break from the things that are in their home. And I say things that could be, yes, the people. That's why I live by myself with a dog, um, you know, uh, so, but sometimes it's the people, you know, who are uh, kind of in your house and you love them and they love you, but sometimes you just need a freaking break. Uh, and peer yeah. respite is so beautiful for that because, you know, you're around people who understand those stressors, who maybe have been through them themselves and can support you. You know, I used to go to a hotel. That was my big thing. When I need a break or when I kind of need mm. like, wow, I have to like just step away. I need somebody to- You need a change in scenery. Change in scenery. I need somebody to make my bed because I do like a made bed. I really do. But- um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, yes, that is one thing this unicorn must have. Uh, thank you, mom. <laughs> But, um, you know, or, you know, I need somebody to cook my food. I just can't do it. I'm just at the point. I just can't do it. I need to be taken care of. It sounds really weird, but yes, I need to be taken care of. And a lot of times people said, well, that means you need to go to the hospital. I'm thinking, "Mm, ew, no, (laughs) I need something different than it's not hospital. When I say need a break, it's almost like saying, oh, I need a vacation. Hospital is not a vacation. So, um, and they don't make your bed for you anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, they do when you go it's off. It's not your... really a comfortable place. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. So uh, that that was kind of how I got my respite. It's a very expensive respite to have. You know, peer respites are a little bit different. Same kind of level of hospitality and welcoming, but extra support too. So you can talk about all this stuff that might be going on in your life and try to come to um, some problem solving, get connected to resources and stuff like that. So I'm a big fan of of peer respites. I wish there were more, especially now um, as a pandemic is lifting. I think people are going to be finding and needing more um, supports for their emotional well-being, quite frankly. Yeah, you can think of a peer respite almost as like a time to retreat Mm -hmm. or have a change in scenery. And I've been doing advocacy And, you know, we both have to help policymakers understand the idea of peer-run support, peer supports, such as peer respite. And it's not general knowledge. This is not something that an everyday person would know. So I think having conversations with our legislators, our elected officials is just so important because they don't know everything. And a good one will say that. They will say, I don't know the answer, but I want to hear from you what you think we should be doing. And that time to listen and to take note of the ideas of what's working on the ground is really what informs good policy. Right. One of the things that oftentimes happens in policy is people that have no idea what happens on the ground comes up with the structure and framework for how a system or operation will work. Yes. And it has typically unintended consequences that might harm us, especially people of color, especially people who might be LGBTQ. They just don't think about how systems might be violent or traumatic for us. So 
taking time to, to weigh in is really important. And it's, it's not easy. Trying to build in 30 minutes to write a letter, to get your thoughts down on paper, it's not easy when you're running. You might be working two jobs to make income. You might have kids. You might have demands at work. You might not be a good writer. That You have to kind of go into a different part of your brain, or at least I do, to write something cohesively. And it takes me a while. Mm-hmm. I think we need that push. We don't necessarily have a lot of education about that civic process and Sometimes we lose faith in our leaders, too, because of the corruption and other issues that have come up that show that, okay, am I really a priority to y'all? Because it seems like yeah. y'all don't care about Black people. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so that's why I think in, in policy, we have to become the policymakers. Yes. We do. It's really important. Just like in the justice system, we have to become the judges in you know, the banking system, we have to become the financiers. We have to overcome challenges and barriers, and we have to be twice as good um, to get on equal footing with white people oftentimes. But I think once we start, we have started to see a, a new kind of renaissance of Blacks in leadership. Chiquita Brooks Lashore yes. is the first Black woman CMS administrator Woo-woo. since the 60s and 70s at, at the federal level. So it's kind of a, a rebirth, I think, that we're having that I think we've, we have to value and we have to keep those gains and really keep striving because it's possible. It's just, But we still see our demonstrators and social disruptors being killed. I mean, we have people being kidnapped in states like Tennessee and Kentucky and Georgia. We have people who are intimidated and killed um, just for being in the neighborhoods, you know, like Ahmaud Arbery. So there is violence that we are overcoming. Um, But I do think that a part of policy is learning about what position of leadership you want to be in so that you can be a part of that conversation. Yeah, that's that's a really, really powerful message and one that I had to learn. Um, you know, sometimes I just tripped into my positions, not really thinking about, you know, what is it that I want to do and how is it that I want to get there? I think I told you that my, my dream job when I was a kid was to be a mom, <laughs> which is like, it, it is a dream job. Aww. It is a dream job. Okay. <laughs> I, all right. I have a dog. I'm a, yeah. I'm a mom to a dog. Okay, fine. But, but in, in fact, you know, my, my dream was to be a mom of 12 kids because it was just my brother and I, and we lived mainly overseas moving every three years. So we had to be each other's best friends. We had to keep making friends over and over and over again. Oh, wow. um, if we wanted to do a, a pickup game of basketball, we, we kind of had to find people to do that. And I thought, well, if I gave birth to 12 kids, this is before I knew how kids were born. So let's just be clear. <laughs> right? Once I figured that out, I was like, okay, maybe I'll be adopting some. They're all not coming out of my body. But, um, <laughs> uh, but that's kind of what I wanted to do was to have all of these kids and kind of recreate a little bit the experience I had of growing up around the world, but making sure that the kids had kind of like their, their buddies in, in, in family. But, uh, you know, in, in fact, uh, you know, that didn't happen um, because of sort of the interruption of a mental illness and yeah. yeah, just all sorts of stuff. So I sort of 
didn't know what I was going to do um, until I met other people and got involved in the mental health movement and started to see a lack of leadership of people who look like me that were having different experiences in the mental health uh, treatment arena as Black folk. We were just, I was just treated differently. And I saw, you know, some other, just people treated differently who were Black and Brown. And I thought, okay, well, this isn't right. Um, and for most, for anybody, wasn't seeing sort of this belief that people could get better, could move off of disability, you know, could move into different roles and um, then I became more intentional about kind of what I was doing. And, you know, so appreciated that I got the opportunity to meet you. And, and then you asked me, well, wait, are there other Black people out here like us? <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes, girl, I have met them. So I uh, <laughs> so started doing yes. this. And you've introduced me to a lot of them. And I did not see them. I did not see their history, our history being told. I did not see them in the historical videos and documents that I was reading. I did not even get to visit them because I started doing kind of like tours. I started touring like peer run facilities and just learning about what behavioral health run organizations were doing. And I just did not see a lot of Black folks. We were receiving the services, yes. but we weren't leading them. That's right. And yes. I think... For me, it wasn't, yeah, I didn't have like a direct line to the policy world. I just got to try different things and realize, okay, no, that's not for me. Yes, that's for me. No, that's not for me. Well, what about this? I'm interested in this and talking to folks. And there's one woman who worked in the Maryland delegation with me who actually left the policy world and then uh, went to get her social work degree and actually provide, you know, services to through like in the community, through ACT teams and other things. And her overall goal was to come back to policy once she got that experience in the field. And I thought that's how it should be done. That's who we should be highlighting and, and we should create this kind of pathway for learning about what's happening on the ground and then coming back to make policy and shape policy. And so I think there's some kind of good characteristics to think about if, if policy is the world for you. So are you a good listener? Are you flexible? Do you like working with different people and different organizations? And kind of, do you find similarities between ideas? Or do you cross kind of like relate one thing to another in your head as someone is talking like, oh yeah, that relates to this, which relates to that. I think finding those cross connections are really useful and, and something that people in policy do. I'll also say it's, it's having a, a personality that can be amenable to collaboration and teamwork because that's just so important yeah. in policy, just having the openness and willingness to work work across the aisle, work with people that don't look like you, work with being open. Yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting. Um, I think there, in, in my head is sort of, I've been looking at this and looking at different people and seeing how the different movements are working. That's the one thing I did too, is look back at, well, how did the civil rights movement work? How did the women's movement work? How did the LGBT movement work? The consumer movement is not new. And as a matter of fact, it says it has its um, foundation and basis from some of these other movements. So um, I thought that was really powerful to be part of a movement. That's kind of cool, right? So, and I also think there's- And we need that. 
Yeah. And I also think, um, you know, some people will make, um, you know, very good inside advocates. I'm an inside advocate person and, and possibly inside advocates also are really good policy people because they have to figure out all sides of an issue. They have to be able to get on and kind of communicate with people who they disagree with or who disagree with them, um, you know, and I think um, then there are um, outside advocates where it may be sort of it's a, it's a message and you're driving home that message. Um, and it doesn't matter that you uh, if you disagree with me, I'm going to hound you like a dog because you disagree with me and maybe I attack you or maybe I do whatever to kind of uh, make my point. Um, and I think that's needed too. So I think um, yeah. you're bringing up a really good point about if this is your skill set, you know, being able to be flexible, being able to communicate with uh, different um, people on both sides of the aisle, being able to put disparate things together and kind of make sense of it and then communicate it out. If that's your skill set, then maybe inside advocacy or policy is really good. If that's not your skill set and that's not of interest to you, that's okay too, because the outside activism, activists, like straight up activist work is really powerful too. I think we need both. Um, it's kind of like, Absolutely. you know, putting pressure kind of from both inside and outside, which is kind of cool. And I think you need both because without the street uh, demonstrations, protests, the rallies, you're not going to keep folks' attention on the issue. When people see, oh, there are people with signs outside again today, they're going to take note of that, they're, they're gonna remember that. But then you also need to be able to be at the table and have conversations where you can disagree agreeably to try to find the common right. ground. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I um, have so enjoyed this conversation, Karen. It has been just an honor to be able to get to know you and to work with you. I just love like our conversations when we're kind of getting to the meat of things. <laughs> And um, yay. so, yay, yeah, I know. It's amazing. It's amazing. And there's still much work to be done. So I hope this um, really provides people sort of a way forward to think about, wow, how could I be involved? That maybe my role in some of this work is going to be outside advocacy or no wait, Ooh, I want to learn more about policy, maybe, you know, inside advocacy, but most importantly to give hope to people that, um, you know, there are folks like you who are doing the hard work. You're doing that unapologetically black unicorn thing. Um, I wish I could give everybody a little unicorn horn, <laughs> you know, and say, and yeah, here's your, I, I am not the owner of you, uh, of a black unicorn ness, but, um, you know, uh, <laughs> if I could knight you, if I could knight you black unicorn, I would do so. Oh. So uh, I think you've left us with some really great um, ideas and, and thoughts forward. So thanks for spending some time with us. I really, really appreciate it. Paris, I will see you soon. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you, Karen. We uh, just again want to thank you and encourage everybody to join us again next week. We'll be here on Apologetically Black Unicorns. <laughs>